everybody, this is try two for Perkin Warbeck part two. We finally had it happen where we lost audio. <laughs> My fault. I deleted myself. I think you just saved over top. You didn't actually delete anything, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm terrified I'm going to do it again. <laughs> we have a plan in place. <laughs> right? We haven't said hello yet. Oh, hello. So, hello, I'm Lucy. <laughs> Welcome to the 16th episode of Tudor Refers, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, dun, da, 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 the second try of Perkin Part 2. <laughs> it's going to be fine. It will be. <sighs> oh, we're okay. Right, calm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I should, probably shouldn't have had that half bottle of gin, should I? Oh, no, I don't drink gin. <laughs> Horrible stuff. Oh my gosh, if you want a really, really good book to read that's fairly short, I think it's called The Gin Craze. Loved that book. Ooh. Really well written. I read it in less than a day because I got so absorbed in it and it was fascinating. And it was an assignment for school, for university. Mm -hmm. It's one of my history assignments. And it was awesome. I was like, this is the best. <laughs> it, it gives you such a almost horrific view of the gin craze, but also why it occurred in the first place and how many people were dying because they didn't realize that there was more alcohol in it than there was in beer. So when they were drinking gin, oh, they were drinking God. as much as if they were drinking they drank a pint pints. of beer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's about thinking about. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I can recommend that book highly. I love that book. Okay. Well, it's not Tudor, so we're not going to have a chance to read it for a very long time. True. True. But it made me think of it. Right. If you remember from last week, we left Perkin creeping out of Charles VIII French court like a guilty lover <laughs> after the peace made between Charles and Henry had put him in a dangerous position. Now, if you also remember last week, it was really confusing. Yes. There should be a lot easier, this one, because although we've got to look at people's motives, and they don't always admit to what their motives really are. Yes. We do tend to know what he's up to at any one time. It's not like it was before we were thinking, is he in Burgundy? Is he in Ireland? What's he doing? Why, why is he in Portugal? Well, right, we have better records. Yes. Okay. Well, he's a person now, isn't he? He's a person to be reckoned with. So yes. people take notice of him and write things down. Anyway, now read on. Margaret of Burgundy said that when she first heard the news, she thought it was outbursts of insanity. And it was only when Charles welcomed Perkin to the French court as his long-lost kinsman that she began to take notice. Well, again, uh, how much can we take this as truth? If she'd never come across him before, she might well have thought, what's happening? What's going well, on? It, wait, the outbursts of insanity, when they say that, it could be really excited, happy, manic, or it could be, like, furious and freaking out. Which, which one are we guessing? I presume she's happy. Oh, okay. I mean, she, that's, that's her nephew, isn't it? So yeah. But if, he's, if he moved in with her when he was nine... Then she wouldn't be so excited because she had already then known she he did would exist. Already know, but so, so yeah, right. Yep. Motive confusion number one <laughs> out of many. <laughs> well, when she and Maximilian received letters to say that Richard Duke of York had resurfaced, they wrote to James the Fourth of Scotland, and he gave them the reassurance they were seeking. Although, how he would know, unless of course he'd been primed by Charles the Eighth. Right. So what occurred to me was Margaret was 
had very much adopted the spiritual life, and she? I mean, she even saw Jesus in her bedroom, so yes. she very much adopted the spiritual life. Did she, or was she a little bit delusional? I, I, we can't say until I've actually researched her, but I've heard both back and forth that there was a little touch of... I wouldn't be at all surprised. But I did wonder, yeah, whether she saw the return of her nephew as recompense from God for all her sufferings. Right. I mean, that could be either way, delusional, or she really did see Jesus in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. And Margaret sent people who had known the Duke of York as a boy to check him out in the spring of 1492. And they came back saying that he definitely was who he said he was. Again, how can you tell? If she hadn't, or they hadn't seen him since he was a boy, and he's now much older, you don't look the same as when you were a child. Yeah, but they they were willing to... To just accept it. They, they were obviously very certain, because there's a quote, If he was to be discovered to be an imposter, they cursed themselves with great execrations, prepared to endure all tortures and torments. Which sounds a bit foolhardy and rather dangerous thing to say, really. <laughs> so. But had Ma- yeah, I thought had Margaret put them up to it, you know, go to France, see if it's my nephew, and come back with the answer yes. Yeah. Or did she already know since she'd been looking after him since he was nine? But then she wouldn't have sent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this- <laughs> according to Virgil, Margaret welcomed Perkin with open arms as her long lost nephew. But Virgil didn't believe any of it. She gave Perkin a retinue dressed in the livery of Tudor colours, to which Virgil said, The more that deceit was given the appearance of truth, the more people professed to believe the youth had escaped from the hand of King Richard by divine intervention and had been led to safety to his aunt. So, effectively, he's saying, you know, if it quacks like a duck, people will assume it's a duck. Oh, my God. Even if it's not a duck. Again, Polydor Virgil. I'm not sure we like Well, I don't like. Polydor Virgil. He's very snidey. Yes. Yeah. And very biased. Oh, well, I think he's paid to be biased, isn't he? Yes, he is. But I think he's presumably saying what what Henry's court is saying. What Henry's court is saying, yeah. It's worth looking to see what he has to say, because that's what they're saying over in England. Margaret wrote to Isabella of Castile, because I think of a Margaret as being very much a gushing schoolgirl. I don't know if you got this impression with her. So far from the sort of periphery. Almost overexcited. Yeah, for the periphery mentions that I've got, yeah, she comes across as somebody easily. Hmm. <laughs> easy to go up or down in mood. I don't know how to explain very, that very well. Very much so. Very much so, yeah. She wrote to Isabella saying breathlessly. I recognised him as easily as, as if I'd last seen him yesterday or the day before, for I had seen him once long ago in England. I had seen him once? Long ago? In England? When he was how old? <laughs> Going back to... Less yes. than nine. Yeah, about seven. And she went on to say, he did not have just one or another sign of resemblances, but so many and so particular that hardly one person in ten, in a hundred, or even in a thousand might be found who would have the marks of the same kind. But unfortunately she failed to mention what these marks were. <laughs> and Isabella wrote to Margaret expressing some doubt, and Margaret simply said that she would never write anything to them about him again. Ah, okay. I wonder if the mark was a birthmark that was shaped like a crown. <laughs> Because <laughs> somebody else said he had, uh, he had a, a sort of dead one dead eye. I don't mean shriveled. I mean it just yeah, just like a lazy eye a, or something. But not not very alive. It just didn't. Okay. It didn't look normal. And also, 
he has an I think an overbite. Oh. But not a huge one, just a slight one. Okay. Um, yeah, neither one of those are hugely common overbites. You don't see them anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean how you draw an American yokel with the jaw yeah. here. I just mean... Yeah, but neither... Like, a lazy eye, if that's what it is, and an overbite, those are very common. Hmm. Very. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't wasn't seduced by that theory, that uh, <laughs> argument at all. June 1492, Elizabeth Woodville died. And Margaret was happy to step into the role of mother. This was the child she'd been desperate for all this time. So for Margaret... Perkins fulfilled two roles. He was the son she'd always longed for, and also the weapon she could use to hit back at Henry. Yes. And this is what made Perkins so much more dangerous to Henry than Lambert, Lambert Simnel had been. Mm-hmm. And some people have said that the Simnel uprising was a dummy run for this one. What? Well, I, want, well, I wonder if Paul Lambert realised that. Well, why, why would you do a dummy run with somebody else that you've already said is... Yeah. I mean, with so many of these these theories, as I read them, I thought, well, it's a theory, we'll put it in, but... But it's, yeah, highly, highly unlikely, I would think. I, well, I suppose it, this is such a mystery that historians have been putting their two penneth in for <laughs> hundreds of years, haven't they? Charles, Margaret and Maximilian could accept the boy at face value because there would be no comeback for them if he proved false. Right. But, I mean, just a slight humiliation, but the English refugees who who flocked to him needed more proof because if it proved to be a, a hoax, they'd be left high and dry, and that's, that would be dangerous. Wouldn't they already be left high and dry? They're refugees. Yes, but if they com- were convinced that Perkin was who he said he was... Then they have no... They were, they were trying to push him to be king, and then they'd be fine. They'd be right up there, right. wouldn't they? They'd be his right-hand man. Right, okay. Um, but people saw what they wanted to see. The Irish said he looked like a Plantagenet, but, you know, what does a Plantagenet look like? <laughs> Molinet, the Flemish chronicler, said he looked like George Duke of Clarence, but he'd never seen him. <laughs> so, yeah, throughout all of Perkins' life, people see what they want to see. <laughs> when Maximilian's father, Frederick III, died from a surfeit of ripe melons and cold water... Another surfeit. Perkin was... Perkin was invited to the funeral. Everybody dies of surfeit. <laughs> Stay away from surfeits. More or less from that moment, Maximilian adopted Perkin, and he became very much part of the court of the, Roman, the Holy Roman Empire. And he was central to the celebrations for Philip coming into his inheritance. Mm-hmm. Apollodore Virgil, here we go again, oh, later no. said, <laughs> They dressed up the lie and the likeness of truth. Which is quite a good phrase, I think. Yes. So, so, in other words, the more people accepted him, the more others thought, no smoke without fire. Right. Which is still the same today. You can start a rumor yeah. and the more people say it, the more people believe it. Well, a lot quicker these days That's as well. why a lot of advertising is repeat, repeat, repeat. Margaret wrote to Pope Alexander VI to ask for the papal sanctions to be removed from Henry's rebels. Henry was holding the throne only by right of battle, she said, which is sort of true. Mm-hmm. Innocent VIII had been persuaded to give papal dispensation to the marriage of Henry and Elizabeth of York and to excommunicate anyone who went against the Union. So overturning this would enable English people to rise up against Henry without fear of excommunication. Right. So that's why she was so keen to get it done. A Perkin, you will notice, not fighting his own corner. It's Margaret and Maximilian who are sending out all the letters. Well, he does send out some, but... He's quite silent. They're the ones pleading his cause. Right. 
And Margaret wrote several times to John Morton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He merely replied, saying, But truly, he is not reputed to be the son of King Edward in this country. So I'm surprised we still have that letter. I could imagine it being torn to pieces and jumped on by Margaret. <laughs> I found in some countries the monarch would, or somebody would, who was political would write a letter and a copy would be made for their own mm. records. So we end up with two of these letters. It's only in personal letters where you quite often will lose half of the, the information. But then it's, mm. did they keep them after everything was settled? Who knows? I was probably just as well, because we have a lot, lot more than we would have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margaret had other reasons for wanting to get Perkin on the throne. There were various rights to property and payments in England to which she felt that she had a right. For instance, her wool shipping rights and the deeds to Hunsdon House in Hertfordshire. Which sounds like the sort of thing you do in elocution lessons, doesn't <laughs> yes, it? Hunsdon House in Hertfordshire. The rain in Spain. <laughs> Edward IV had never finished paying Margaret's dowry, and there was almost half still owing and she couldn't claim some of her Burgundian territories until the dowry was paid in full. Does anybody pay the dowry in full? Every time we talk about this kind of thing, it's a battle over the money for the dowry. I'd insist on it, the whole thing up front, yeah. I think. <laughs> the minute she arrives, that's where the money is. She comes wearing it or something. <laughs> yeah, or money first, marriage later. Yes. Yeah. Even when Edward IV was alive, Margaret's pleas fell on deaf ears, so she didn't stand a hope in hell, now that Henry was on the throne. No kidding, if your brother won't help you. <laughs> but if Perkin were to become king... Did she... Mm, then we'd be assuming that she had enough influence that he would do that for her. Well, if she's had him since he was nine... Yes. And somebody... I can't remember the quote now, but somebody said that she used a, um, a bit of... A very astute psychology in that she loved and bullied him. Oh, a lovely abusive controlling relationship. It sounds like a lovely childhood if that's where yes, he was. But I don't I don't know where that person was getting their letting their information from. Perhaps they just perhaps they know more about Margaret than we do. Yeah, well I can't wait to research her. If I get her, that's gonna be cool. Well you definitely get a glimpse of Margaret when the wording of a deed which described at length when her rights would be restored once Perkin became king it was all crossed out and replaced with one word. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> was it all caps? <laughs> was she just yelling at people across the letters? Probably about six exclamation marks afterwards. <laughs> Any more than five and it's insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's quite a character. Henry had had spies out getting information about Perkin from very early on. But it was when a character called Clifford, whom we'll come across in a special episode, left to go to Flanders, that Henry really began to panic that all the nobility were going to follow suit. If an envoy or ambassador were delayed abroad, Henry panicked that they weren't coming back and they were heading to Flanders. And he referred to his express mind, implying that it was leaping to one conclusion. Right. He expected the invasion at any time, and he told nobles to be ready to answer the call of arms and started to ready ships. So this lad whom we hear hardly anything about in a book called Perkin. <laughs> and we only hear about the people manoeuvring around him. He's, he's got Henry severely rattled. Right. Henry sent out lots of people to scour Northern Europe to find out who this boy really was. And if Henry could pin a name on him, he'd be able to show people that he was definitely not Prince Richard. Right. The search ended in Tournai. He was the son of a boatman called Verbeck. Verbeck. Osbeck. 
<laughs> Something Beck. <laughs> yeah, names were very fluid in those days. Well, how did Henry know this? Well, according to Perkin, in a royal proclamation later in 1496, it made it up, because Perkin said, if he were a fake, why would Henry be paying people to desert him? They would have deserted in droves anyway, and the fact that they didn't proved that he was who, who he said he was. You know, it's got a point. I don't know, that sounds kind of like circular thinking. It does sound like circular thinking, yes. I am who I say I am because people, other people think I am who I say I am. And because they, they think I am, then I probably am. <laughs> yep, it's that clear. <laughs> In September 1493, Henry sent Sir Edward Poynings to tell Margaret that her white rose, as Perkin was called, was nothing more than a cooking pot boy. Although Poynings himself may have been quite diplomatic, his companion, Wareham, was less so. He told her that the boy was nothing but the fruit of her own monstrous pregnancy. Ooh. Yeah, implying that Perkin was her illegitimate son. Ooh, yeah, that's a good way to get on her good side. <laughs> oh my goodness. Margaret was livid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in fact, when he was accusing her of giving birth to Perkin, he meant recently, when he was 15, implying that it was, oh. it was a metaphor, not an accusation. Oh. <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure that Margaret saw the distinction. <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> and later, Sir Charles Somerset, the Duke of Somerset's bastard son, was sent on a mission to Maximilian. He was received by Maximilian, Philip, Margaret Burgundy and Perkin. And he bowed to the first three, but pointedly ignored Perkin. Ooh, snub. <laughs> Margaret was livid. <laughs> and said, it seems you do not recognise my nephew Richard. Madam, your nephew Richard is long dead. And if it will please you to lend me one of your people, I will take him straight to the chapel where he is buried. Which obviously is not something he could have done. No, because nobody knew where they were. No. And Perkins said he was amazed that Somerset should think him dead, and when he was king, he would not forget this. Ooh. It's a bit sort of, you will feel my wrath. Yes. Sort of, sort of. In July 1494, Henry's envoys told Philip of Perkins' origins, which had been discovered by Henry's spies. The envoy even went out and shouted the news in the streets of Mali Malines, Mali Malines, we'll go Malines, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. I have no idea. <laughs> Presumably to spread dissent. There was, if these people are actually suffering economically and the person behind it was a fraud. But still people weren't sure. He looked the part and also it's quite embarrassing to admit you've been duped. Mm -hmm. Around this time, silver coins were minted for Perkin. They didn't actually show his name, but they were covered in Yorkist symbols. And he started signing documents as king, you know, much as Henry had done in Brittany. I wonder why he didn't have his face on it. That's the usual. Apparently Margaret was minting these coins. Hmm. So, I don't know, perhaps you thought she'd put her own face on it at some point. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> October 1494, Henry made his own son, Henry, Duke of York. Right. In a bid to show that there could only be one Duke of York, and it was Henry. And it... It also was the reason he can be Duke of York is because Richard is dead. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that had to have been hard for his mother-in-law. Hmm. Around this time, Perkins said that because of the benefits received from Maximilian, if he were to die, he ceded to Maximilian and his heirs all his rights to the realm of England, France, and to the Duchy of York, the Lordship of Ireland, and the Principality of Wales. He's given it all away. All of it. All of it. 
He also renounced any papal arbitration so that this agreement could not be overturned. Oh. I mean, it could be seen as being quite clever on Perkins' part if he were just lowly Perkin Warbeck because he's actually got no rights to anything. Yeah, but then he's also, if he ends up getting to be king, gets married and has children, then he's given away the rights. He's given it all away. Oh. It's a huge thing to hand over a country to another power. Yes. Also, I never say to someone, if I'm alive, I get to keep these things, but if I'm dead, you get to have them. Oh, right. <laughs> that's, that's never a sensible arrangement. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Let's just put a big target on the back of my head. Yes. But on the plus side, I mean, Maximilian was able to use this document to persuade a reluctant council that it was well worth stumping up the money for an invasion of England. Well, yeah. <laughs> He could have an accident at any time. <laughs> Indeed. It's amazing he got as far as he did, really. <laughs> and Perkin gave Auntie Margaret a present of the castle and town of Scarborough. Oh, mm. that's nice. I'll give you something I don't own. <laughs> I don't think she has any right to Scarborough whatsoever. And I don't even know why it was Scarborough, but there we go. When rumours of Prince Richard's apparent survival reached England, people had to decide if it was worth risking everything to believe these stories. It was easier to make the decision if you had nothing to lose. In the core of the conspiracy were people who had been in Edward IV's court, but at this stage it mainly consisted of discrete cells rather than a full-blown rebellion. Right, okay. And because, because many of the people who got involved at this point had been part of Edward's court and would therefore have seen his children. Yes. I mean, they may have even known him better than Margaret would have done, since she'd only come back to England once after her marriage. Okay. So there was an exodus of Yorkist to Malin, and there are many defections at this time of people who had previously proved loyal to Henry. So it's not surprising he's so Nervous. so rattled. Mm. He's becoming increasingly unpopular. So you know, was Perkin a useful rallying point to those who were disaffected by Henry's rule? Or did they actually believe he was the Duke of York? I mean, that's pretty much how Henry got followers, wasn't it? Because it was Yorkists who didn't like Richard, yes. which is the third. Many of Perkins' followers were clergy, including quite high-up ones, like the Dean of St. Paul's, since they were resentful that Henry had changed the law, which now said that ex-clerks and those clergy without paper should be tried in a civil court that yes. could be branded with an M for murder or a T for thief. Shouldn't, shouldn't they be executed? <laughs> You're a murderer? <laughs> Why would you just be branded? I did want, Yeah, I wondered if there was a sort of accidental homicide accidental homicide <laughs> okay uh, yeah i get that but that sounds a little horrible <laughs> i don't know i mean yes you would have thought if since people were executed for much more minor offenses yeah however the main motivation was yorkist sympathy what perkin lacked in england was some big hitters people who could raise troops and large amounts of cash i mean apart from sir william stanley and lord fitzwater there was not much in the way of nobility or even of the merchant class. Right, we'll be covering the English conspirators, including a farcical attempt to assassinate Henry in a special episode. Ooh. We've hardly mentioned Philip. He was Maximilian's son and the Duke of Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And although Philip stood by Perkin, and since Margaret had pretty much adopted them both, they were, they were quite like brothers, he was still a minor, and the Burgundian Netherlands were being ruled by council. Council had serious doubts about linking themselves with Perkin, not least because of the importance of the wool imports from England for the making of cloth. I mean, Burgundy was in dire straits anyway following a civil war, and they couldn't afford to risk losing any more. No. I don't think there was a single solvent country. 
Every single one of them seems to be broke. <laughs> England was at the end of Henry's reign. Yes. Right? <laughs> the government was solvent, whether anybody else in the country was solvent. <laughs> <laughs> Philip capitulated to his advisers and told Henry's envoys that he, he would not harbour Perkin anymore. But he couldn't stop Margaret from doing so. She's a subject. <laughs> yes, he's the ruler. She's the subject. Yes, but it seems that nobody had told her that. And also, he may have felt bad dropping Perkin. As I say, he was like a brother. Yeah. So perhaps that was a sort of I've got to, but I'll let Auntie Margaret carry on. <laughs> well, this was not enough for Henry, and in September 1493, he broke trade links with the Burgundian Netherlands. English merchants were given two weeks to get out, you know, which must have been as hard for them as on the Burgundians. Yes. The following April, all Flemish people were expelled from England. You know, Henry's not messing about. No. Philip retaliated, banning English cloth. Because trade embargoes work beautifully. <laughs> to all, with all concern. It backfired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Flanders started making their own cloth instead of buying from England. And in England, there were job cuts and race riots. And meanwhile, the Hanseatic League grew rich, scooping up all the trade that was no longer going in and out of England. All this made Henry even more unpopular. Yeah. Mm. That was not a good decision. We don't seem to be mentioning Perkin much. No. He seems very, very much to be a passive bystander in all these goings on. He reminds me of, I was going to say a football, but <laughs> I mean, I mean, North American football, where they pass the ball from one to another using their hands. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand American football. I don't understand English football much, but certainly not American football. Oh, my husband tried to explain it to me and I was, I was very confused. <laughs> that meant it looks very frustrating. You're attempting to run forward and you slam into somebody else's body. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, but apart from making the odd snidey remarks and giving away towns that have nothing to do with him, things are generally done on Perkins' behalf at this point. And I got up wondering, would he have carried on if Margaret hadn't been pushing him? I don't know. Has he gotten to the point where he thinks, well, everybody's doing this. I can't back off now. It gets more and more enmeshed, whether he wants to or not. Mm -hmm. The Holy League... We've met this before. We have. Another confusing <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> in 1494, Charles VIII invaded Italy and the anti-French Holy League was formed, as we've seen. Henry VII told the League that he would join them. But what with the distraction with Perkin? Yeah. Ah, my throne's not safe at the moment. Just as he had presumably hoped, the League started putting pressure on Maximilian. Mm. He was encouraged to ditch Perkin. He refused. As we've seen before, the League only really wanted Henry to stop him siding with the French rather than any, any merit he, he would have had himself. But Yeah. The Maximilian told the League that instead of pandering to Henry and trying to persuade him to join the League and invade France, they should be using Henry's fear of Perkin against him. And instead of trying to persuade Maximilian to give up Perkin, they should be telling Henry that they themselves would adopt Perkin unless, unless he did these things, you know, more using him as a stick, not a carrot. Yeah. So Maximilian's calling Henry's bluff. Yes. He said that while Henry VII was choosing to remain neutral between France and the members of the Holy League, if Perkin became king, he'd definitely be on side of the League. So it's certainly oh, in the, yeah. the League's benefit to side with Perkin. I mean, if Perkin's very lucky, he's got some good friends. Yes. <laughs> but wait, isn't even the French supporting Perkin? No, the French is... <laughs> 
the French are supporting Henry. What? Well, the French are saying they're supporting Henry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they keep offering him help, but at each time Henry says, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> yes. So his voice getting higher and higher and higher. <laughs> Uh, to lure Maximilian into dropping Perkin, Ferdinand and Isabella offered their daughter, Juana, or Joanna, in marriage to Philip, mm-hmm. on condition that Perkin were dropped. Oh. Yeah, this would have had a further benefit that Juana would, would now be the new Archduchess, so there'd be no place for Margaret. Right. She'd been ousted. Yeah, she'd now definitely be the dower. And definitely be the subject, <laughs> not the ruler. Yes. And although Ferdinand and Isabella were in negotiation with Henry about marrying Arthur and Catherine, the all-pervading presence of Perkin was making them jittery, as the fact that Edward, Earl of Warwick, was still alive would do a decade or so later. So as usual, Perkin is the still silent figure in the middle, whilst the crowned heads of Europe rush about like crazy things trying to sort out the mess, <laughs> even to the point of offering up their own offspring for marriage. I mean, if he's just voting some from Tournai, he must have been pinching himself. <laughs> this is crazy. Yes, what have I done? <laughs> but as Perkin became more dangerous to Henry, he also gained in authenticity. You know, as people could see the heads of state rushing round, trying right. to thwart him, they asked himself, what are they so worried about if he's not who he says he is? Yes. However, on the international stage, this gave Henry some kudos, since apart from Maximilian and possibly Philip, all the other leaders were hoping that Henry would prevail. Okay. I guess it was just too much uncertainty about Perkins' genealogy and loyalty. Uh, yeah. That Henry may have may have not had a huge right to the throne, but he's there, and he represented stability. Out of the two, he's probably the better bet. <laughs> yes, and so far, Henry has not been willing to go to war with anybody. Hmm. But Charles VIII was sending Henry warnings that Maximilian was helping Perkin with cash and soldiers for the invasion. Now, Maximilian was strapped for cash himself, as is everybody, as you say, so his help was of necessity limited. But Charles had every reason to try and turn Henry against Maximilian, as he hadn't made his bid for the throne of Naples yet, but it must have been in the planning stage. And we know he was just trying to sort out things in England and Burgundy before he set out. If might be a suggestion for people to have a little map <laughs> of where yes. all these people are. It seems to have encompassed pretty much all of Europe by now. Hen- I don't think Henry was quite as sure of this Tournai story as he claimed. I mean, when he was panicking about something, he tended to overplay the denial that he was panicking. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when Charles offered him ships which could come bursting out of the ports of Brittany at the moment's notice, Henry declined the offer, saying... The business of the garçon is of so little worth and value that the king does not intend to put the subjects of his brother and cousin to any pain or labour on that account, or to give them that trouble. And as for the idea that Maximilian would help this boatman's son to invade England... It's preposterous. (laughs) Henry said the king can't believe at all he or any other prince would want to do such a thing. I wonder if he's thinking that at two o'clock in the morning, lying in bed with his eyes wide open. Yes. Oh, man, it's one of those where he's made a decision. He's good, he's good, he's good, he's good. At about two o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God, what have I done? (laughs) I should have taken those ships. I should have taken those ships. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Why did I not say yes? (laughs) However, Perkins' invasion of England, backed by Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, 
and Margaret of Burgundy, a rather odd woman, was set for February the 22nd. It was postponed until the summer. I mean, February is a stupid time to cross the channel. <laughs> it doesn't sound like there is a good time to cross the channel. No, it really doesn't. Maximilian had already signed over quite large sums of money for the invasion. For instance, £6,800 for ships. But each time it's done discreetly. It's laundered through the treasury at Lille. And when he's asked, he claims claimed repeatedly that he had no part in this invasion. Hmm. He was also playing up Perkins' readiness to invade, even telling someone that it was already happening, although Perkins' force was still still far from ready. It would be interesting when we do Maximilian, because he does seem to stick his head in the sand quite a lot. But is it is it for deceit, or is it because he's just not willing to... I think he's not willing to, to see reality. Okay. That's the impression I'm getting, that he, he tells people what he wants to have happened, not what's actually happened. Right. I mean, this behaviour is understandable. I mean, it's embarrassing to have poured money into a venture that's beginning to look more and more like a white elephant. Yes. And he was finding it increasingly difficult to raise the money as some imperial states, e.g. the Tyrrells, refused and told him in no uncertain terms that they thought it was a crazy scheme (laughs) that would ruin both the emperor and the country. (laughs) Maximilian did manage to borrow as much as £15,000 tournois for secret affairs, as it was called. And one loan was so large that Maximilian left his wife, Bianca Maria, as a pledge for it. What? Oh, Mm. I'd be so mad if my husband did that. I need a loan for this. You can have my wife. Pardon? I wonder if he told her. I wonder if they just both went there and he just sneaked off early in the morning. Oh, that'd be the safest way to do it. It certainly would. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'd say, yeah, pop down. Has anyone seen my husband? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's been a lot of whispering saying, he hasn't told her, he hasn't told her. Oh, God. Okay, okay, we draw lots. <laughs> but my thought was, spoilers here, Perkin does not get to be king. Oh, how does he get his wife back? Yes, on the, it's loaned on the basis that he was made king. That's a lot of loans that he owes, owes on. Ooh. I mean, presumably he does get his wife back. I don't think she's going to be pleased with him when she comes home. No. The money was raised from other sources. Margaret of Burgundy gave 8,000 crowns to provision the fleet. The prior of the Irish house of the Knights Hospitallers was accused of pawning a piece of the true cross and other relics from his priory in Ireland to fund Perkin. And another, another priest, William Loud, had provided money for Perkin by absconding with money and jewels from the house of Ralph Lord Hastings. So he stole... He stole. Yes, he legged it with his pockets full of this bloke's property. And oh in gratitude, gosh. Perkin made him his private chaplain. Oh, yeah, because that's a... Oh, my gosh. How is that a good curriculum vitae? Like, yes, you stole <laughs> things and you're a priest. You can be my chaplain. Yeah, I wouldn't trust him not to do the same for me. But No. Um... I... What happened to thou shalt not steal? Well, what happens to thou, not, thou shalt not kill? I didn't seem to have any problems with True. it, do they? True. <laughs> On April the 3rd, Maximilian and Philip heard news that far from them invading England, 
Henry's troops had turned up at Zealand, where the fleet was being assembled. And this sent them into a panic, but Henry's little fleet of just five ships disappeared again. Henry was just letting them know he knew what they were up to. I didn't know five ships were a fleet. <laughs> well, or a little fleet. It's a teeny tiny fleet. <laughs> a fleetette. <laughs> a fleetette. <laughs> <laughs> Maximilian managed to assemble 6,000 mercenaries. At least that's what he said. He promised 800 more, and had, but had trouble finding them. And when he had half that number, he put them on the ships in readiness, where they promptly jumped off and disappeared, as did the ship's crews. This is going well. So people are just fleeing, basically. Did they get paid I, first? I don't know. <laughs> they obviously weren't thinking that this was going to be the sort of enterprise you want to be involved no, in. No, it was not going to do well. No. I checked to see if those mercenaries could have been some of Charles VIII's syphilitic soldiers from the invasion of Naples. <laughs> but the Battle of Novo was July 1495, and Maximilian had collected his troops by June, so at least those were probably relatively syphilitic-free, in as much as anyone was at this time. Oh my goodness. We've got a whole pr- a programme about that for to listen to later on. Think of Mike Ayer after Isabella. <laughs> I don't know why we did that. doesn't sound enticing. You can learn about syphilis. Join us. <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. <laughs> Ferdinand and Isabella were amazed that Perkins' invasion was ready to take place because, well, for a start, they didn't think Maximilian would manage it. I mean, he was, he was notorious for starting things and not seeing them through. But it was also because they told him not to do it. <laughs> And they were convinced that Maximilian was only doing it to get rid of Perkin. He's sending him off on a suicide mission. I don't know if he'd put in a clause to say, I don't have to pay back my loans if he dies on the route or something, but it doesn't seem a very likely thing in as much as they've got a lot riding on this boy. Yeah, his poor wife. Financially. Yes. <laughs> but if that was the case, it was a suicide mission, it very nearly worked. Perkin was setting off to invade a country that has already been pretty much swept clean of dissent. Henry had decimated the insurgency, as we'll see in the special episode. Virgil said that Perkin was devastated by grief. He'd sent out a message to say that his friends had been murdered because Henry stood in dread of them. You know, which may have been fight and talk on Perkin's part, but given Henry's mental state at the time, it's probably true. I think he was he did stand in dread of them. Yes. But we'll find out all about the English conspirators in the special episode. The only conspirator of any standing left in England at this point was John Kendall. And his commitment seems a bit ropey, given that he gave his retinue reversible jackets so they could quickly become Henry's men, <laughs> should the need arise. Oh my, how would you explain that if they found those clothes? <laughs> <laughs> when Perkins set off to invade England and reclaim his crown, the number of English people he had with him was minimal, and the number of people he could rely on when he got to England was negligible. So it's not surprising that Ferdinand and Isabella saw it as a suicide mission. Yeah. The invasion. Well, the fleet set off from Vissingen in Zealand on July the 2nd, 1495. Strangely, they don't seem to have had a destination. They just let the wind take them. And it took them to Deal in Kent, which incidentally is where Julius Caesar landed. So perhaps that's where the current takes you. Yeah, I was going to say, it must have been a current. It must have been a known current. Well, Perkin was unsure of the reception he'd get. Kent was notoriously rebellious and predominantly Yorkist, but just in case, Perkins sent out a small party of 300 foot soldiers to check the feeling of the natives and to pillage. So had they been sympathetic before... (laughs) They weren't now! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's only crossed the channel. Why does he need to pillage? He should have brought food with him. Yeah. 
pack a lunch. There are sandwiches. Oh, wait, no, no sandwiches yet. Never mind. <laughs> They're no sooner landing when a man at arms rode up to the soldiers and asked whose men they were. The Duke of York, they said proudly. We ask for no other lord in this land, the man cried. We wish to live or die with him. Make him disembark with his company. We will do him all the honour, help and favour we possibly can, with our hearts, our bodies and our goods. And while they were, they were getting the duke, the man said that he would get jugs of beer for everyone. It sounds promising. The soldiers were ecstatic because they were a little bit stupid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the speech hadn't made them suspicious, surely the promise of free beer would have done it. <laughs> I would have been the stupid one. <laughs> Well, this is going better than I expected. <laughs> the people back on board the ships were not so daft, so they didn't get off. And were quite right not to, as a troop of soldiers suddenly appeared from nowhere and pretty much massacred oh. Perkins' troops. Oh. Well, hello. And they didn't even get their beer. <laughs> the survivors were taken to London, where they were interrogated for information on the feigned lad, as Henry called Perkins. Nine particular prisoners closest to Perkin were taken to Henry at Fotheringay for interrogation. By September, Henry sent them back to London for beheading. The common soldiers were hanged and their bodies left hanging on the tide lines of the coasts of Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex and Kent like pirates. Because I think Henry thought, well, they are pirates. They've arrived by sea. So. Right, but still gross. Anyway, we left Perkin standing on the deck of his ship, watching his soldiers being butchered on the beach. He did the sensible thing. He turned the ship round and fled. <laughs> What's Perkin good at? Running. <laughs> Even on water. <laughs> well, apparently the attack on, attack on the men had nothing to do with Henry. It was a spontaneous Kentish rout. And Henry wrote a letter to Philip saying that not only was the invasion a complete fiasco, but it happened while we were hunting at one end of our kingdom. So he's saying... Not, not only did I manage to put down the invasion... I wasn't even there. But I didn't even know anything about it. So. Oh, my goodness. I wonder if that made him feel more comfortable, because since there was a Kent rebellion, now they like him? Yes, they must do. Yeah. Or perhaps they thought the lesser of two evils. Yes. <laughs> Perkin had fled, but where to? De Puebla, the um, Spanish ambassador, wrote back to Ferdinand and Isabella that Perkin was in hiding, but not from Henry but from Maximilian, Margaret of Burgundy, and Philip. Well... Quote, since the whole land is destroyed by his sojourn there. Yeah, he took all their money. And this is a bit of a leitmotif with young Perkin, hiding from his own side. Oh, no. I think there's at least three occasions where he has to hide from his own side. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he's telling the person beside him, this has never been my idea. <laughs> On July the 11th, Maximilian heard that Perkin was heading back to England. On the 17th, he heard that Perkin was in England, amassing his followers. Two days later, Maximilian was telling people that now that Perkin had taken England, he hoped that he would immediately invade France. But by August the 16th, he was still waiting for firm news. And it was at this time that the Milanese, that's Maximilian's father-in-law, who I would have thought would have a few words to, to say about to Maximilian, about how he's treated his daughter. Yes. Uh, the Florentines and the Spanish were nagging Maximilian to allow Henry to join the Holy League. Now, Maximilian explained that he'd be quite happy to let the king in, but which one? He was waiting to see the outcome of the invasion. Oh. Unfortunately for Maximilian, his version of Perkin sweeping into England, taking it from the usurper and then launching an attack of France was a complete myth. 
Perkin had gone to Ireland with a few, very few, remaining troops. And Henry was making preparations to go there and rout him. And apparently when Maximilian was told this, he listened without making reply. Mm-hmm. I should think he's thinking, Oh, God. <laughs> yes. I've just lost my wife. <laughs> and vast quantities of money. Oh, God. Oh. Ferdinand and Isabella advised Henry against making war on Perkin, since crowns could so easily be won and lost. They said, In feet of arms, no one must place his hopes in an abundance of power or soldiers, for it often turns out that the smaller forces triumph over the larger ones. To which Henry probably answered, I know, how do you think I got here? <laughs> and I think because Henry's campaign does parallel Perkins in so many ways, he was championed by the people in mainland Europe. He arrived on the coast, it all went wrong, he had to go back. He didn't have much of a claim to the throne. And most people thought he didn't have a hope in hell. So it's not surprising he was so afraid of Perkin. Yeah. Yeah, because he got in against the odds. It sounds like just a repeat of what he did. Perkin oh. sounds like a repeat of what he did. Uh, Philip officially dropped Perkin after the deal fiasco, and he entered into trade talks with England. This culminated in February 1496 with the Magnus Intercursus, which included promises not to help the rebels. And this time it wasn't just Philip, but it mentioned Auntie Margaret by name. <laughs> hey, she is a subject! <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that she would lose properties if she persisted to help Perkin. She would have been livid. Oh, yes. <laughs> They're probably mentioning properties she never got. Yes. <laughs> that must be part of her diary. <laughs> so, Ireland, July 1495. Henry was on him immediately. Perkin, this is, provisioning four ships at Plymouth and Foy, with 470 men on board with crossbows and horses and brand new uniforms. Ominously, Henry also called for a list of all Irish people living in England. Uh oh. I don't know what came of that, whether he made use of it or not, but it's a, yeah, it's a, it's not a, it's a worrying aspect. Of... Yeah, well, it's like how he made the Flemish leave. I wonder if he would have rounded them up, or if he just would have expelled them like he did earlier with the oh. Flemish. I'm gonna hope it was the gentle. You can just get out. Yeah. But Perkin did make it to Ireland. He was able to evade Henry's fleet due to storms. His fleet of five? <laughs> I think it's bigger this time. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. It's four ships this time, it's isn't it? Four. How hard is it to avoid four ships? That's a lot of water. Four ships would not cover very much of it. Especially if you keep them together as their own little fleet. <laughs> oh. The fleetette. <laughs> <laughs> Several major Irish figures came out in favour of Perkin, the greatest of these being the Earl of Desmond. As Perkin arrived in Ireland, he seems to have pulled into a harbour, briefly, attacked a ship, the Christopher, which was bringing iron from Spain. He seized the ship and sold the iron, and so had money and an extra ship. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> then he met up with the Earl of Desmond to attack Waterford, presumably because it had been the only place that had remained loyal to Henry during the Simnel Uprising. But you think, well, that's probably Desmond's fight rather than yeah. Perkins. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if Perkin was just there to provide extra men. Mm -hmm. And Desmond might have said, well, I'll back you. You come and help me sort out my, my own battles. Mm -hmm. Desmond attacked by land and Perkin by river. Except that Perkin had got off the ship at the mouth of the river. 
Oh. Like like <laughs> Henry, he didn't really do battles. <laughs> no. They besieged Waterford for 11 days, but were forced to lift the siege on August the 3rd. And it was the arrival of Poynings which raised the siege of Waterford, but apparently it was a close-run thing. And Edward Poynings had been in Ireland since October 94, enforcing order and reversing legal immunity for rebels and arresting them, thus ensuring that they wouldn't be available to help Perkins should he land. Yet another reason why he's not popular in Ireland. It was a very real possibility that a three-pronged attack on England could take place from Flanders, Scotland and Ireland. Yeah, and here we see why Poynings was such a dirty word in Ireland. So, yeah, no more Mr. Teddy Bear. No. Henry sent Poynings over with, with a small army, and he was made deputy lieutenant... Those who would not swear loyalty to Henry and surrender lands and sons as bonds had their lands fired. When you say fired, we're talking about how they literally set it on fire, mm. including house, barns, fields, mm. everything, if I everything remember. Everything you've got. Yeah. All constables of castles would henceforth be English. The Earl of Kildare was arrested on trumped-up charges. Many Irish families incensed by this treatment by Henry that sided with Perkin, and whether they would have done before, who knows, but Henry's heavy-handed tactics really do seem to have backfired here. Yes. Poynings did his best to track down Perkin, but without success. He slipped away to Cork, to John Atwater, who we met in the last episode. Then for three months, Perkin disappeared, just wandering around the wilder parts of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Why did men stay with Perkin when all seemed to be going so badly? I don't know. <laughs> that is not something I have any sort of answer to. Well, many of them, Skelton, Neville, etc., had been with him right from the start, so I suppose their adventures had created a bond. Okay, that makes sense. And I suppose you can't go back, really, can you? I mean, you can't go back and say to Henry, actually, we've made a mistake. Sorry. You couldn't be sure of being pardoned. True. But at least one of them, Taylor... Possibly didn't dare let Perkin out of, him, out of his sight. Well, is this about the time that Emson and Dudley were acting? So, yeah, going back would be... Not quite yet. Okay. No, we're about a year or so beforehand, I think. Yeah. And like so many of these people, Perkin did seem to have something about him. I know it doesn't come through in history, <laughs> but it must have been there for people to have flocked to him. Yeah, it, all he feels like right now is a rag doll. I'll push oh. you over here. We'll push you here. But, but he must have been a very charismatic ragdoll. Yeah. And yeah, people do seem to want to be with him. Charles wanted to be with him. Friends with Maximilian and Philip. Mm-hmm. However, Ireland was getting too dangerous for Perkin. But where could he go? Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Perkin arrived in Scotland on November the 20th, 1495. As early as 1492, James IV had been sending money to Perkin's cause and was receiving letters from Margaret, 
Henry was aware of what was going on. He always is, isn't he? Yes. He seemed very keen to mend bridges with Scotland. I think he was so worried about this three-pronged attack that he thought, well, I'll take Ireland out of the equation by heavy-handedness, Scotland out of the equation by truces, and trying to foist his daughter on the king. Yes. Well, James wasn't impressed. Why would he want to marry one of Henry's daughters when he was conspiring to oust Henry and put Birkin on the throne? He even sent ships to join Perkin's invasion fleet. How much he actually believed that Perkin was Richard, or how much he was using him to get at the English, it's impossible to tell. (laughs) James received him with great pomp in Stirling. He sent tapestries and plate to furnish a grand house for Perkin there and organised jousts. And not all Perkin's followers were impressed with Scotland, complaining of the dank cold weather and the watery beer. A few days after Perkin's arrival, James asked him to address the assembled lords. This Perkin did, telling them sadly of his life as a friendless wanderer. Sometimes he wished he had died with his brother. When he told people who he was, his most crafty enemies began to bribe and corrupt his friends and spread false rumours. And the speech was accompanied with tears and racking sobs. And he said he'd be happy just to live in Scotland and put an end to his wandering. But if they could see their way to getting his kingdom back... (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say no. He would cherish friendship with his Scottish people. And after that, Perkin broke down and was led away. (laughs) And the lords debated whether to help him. They decided in favour, as they knew that was what James expected them to do. And then James took him on a tour of Scotland. They were usually seen together. So again, he he had to have... He couldn't have been repulsive. <laughs> no. No, and he obviously is noble-seeming enough for all these noble people to accept him. I mean, if he, if he talked and acted like a boatman's son... Yes. They wouldn't have been quite so keen. No. Anyway, to give Perkin more credibility, what better than a marriage befitting his alleged status? Well, Maximilian had suggested his daughter, but that had sort of fizzled out as if Maximilian was not 100% sure and didn't want to find his daughter stuck with a disgraced commoner. (laughs) But a Scottish possibility was already on the cards. And in fact, the speed with which Perkin married when he reached Scotland shows that this had been planned for some time. Yeah, because it took years to make those negotiations finished. Yeah, Catherine and Arthur. I mean, it dragged on and on and on, didn't it? Mm -hmm. He was betrothed to Lady Catherine Gordon. And this was a good match for Perkin, as her father was the most powerful lord in Scotland. But he's already given away his kingdom and everything if he died. So why? what's in it for her? I don't know how much this was common knowledge. Had James been told about this? Oh. Was, it just, was this just a secret document between him and Maximilian? Maximilian. Well, no, Maximilian used it to get money. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't want to marry him. And they all have spies all over the place, don't they? Yes. We can see what Catherine had to offer, but what did Perkin have to offer? He had no money, other than what James gave him. He had potentially a good title, but you know that depended on many factors. I mean, it did help that Catherine's father did believe that he was Richard. And this marriage gave Perkin a status that was actually real and undeniable, whereas everything else about him was nebulous. They couldn't get married immediately because of Advent. But their first child was born in September, which, since they got married in January, meant that they didn't waste much time. And apparently, put this in here, don't know where else to put it, Perkin wore an enormous codpiece. (laughs) 
It just doesn't fit with my image of him. It's nope. Sort of... <laughs> Not at all. Henry VIII wears enormous codpieces. I don't think Perkin would, but there we go. He favoured the codpiece. Whether they had children or not seems undecided. Anne Rowe gave him a son called Richard. The Perkin conspiracy didn't really seem sure, because later Henry worried that Catherine might be pregnant after he, after Henry caught Perkin, and he was worried about the dynastic issue. Okay. Why would he worry if Perkin already had a son? Right. So it seems to be one of those take-your-pick moments in history, I think. Or they could have had a son and it died. Could have done. We're so casual when we say that. But yeah. children died so easily. Mm. What did Perkin think of the marriage? Assuming for a moment that he's not the Duke of York, how did Perkin, the son of a Tornai boatman, feel as he made his marriage vows under the name of Richard? Ooh, would that marriage be valid? Well, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, if that's the case, not only is he tricking Catherine, but he's tricking God. Mm-hmm. And later in his confession of 1497, his confession to Henry, he said that he'd been pre- prevented in the autumn of 1495 from letting the whole Duke of York thing go, as he longed to do. And that was when he arrived in Scotland and was betrothed to Catherine. So he may have felt that he was becoming so enmeshed in duplicity. He couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah, he might have been afraid of hurting Catherine's feelings. He might have been afraid of her father, who was notoriously violent and litigious. So So now we come to a strange bidding war for Perkin. The French, the Spanish and the English. And just before the Scottish invasion of England, ambassadors flocked to Scotland to put in their bids. The French offered to buy him from James for 100,000 crowns. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, to what purpose? The French wanted to use him as a threat to stop Henry siding with the Holy League. Okay. But it was too late by this point. Henry had joined on his own terms. And Maximilian's clause was largely ignored. I think everyone was just fed up with Maximilian. <laughs> and he had probably had other things to think about by this time. Yeah. Where's my wife? Mm. <laughs> She's going to be so cross with me. <laughs> the Holy League were trying to fight the incoming French army and the Turks. And the whole thing was being held up because someone the rest of them didn't think was important. Anyway, I'm sure Henry will be a valued asset to the League. James refused the French offer. The Spanish offered him refuge and a pension. That's Perkin, obviously, not James. June 1496, a rumour went round that Ferdinand and Isabella were going to mediate between Henry and Perkin, which seems very unlikely. I can't imagine Henry agreeing to that, because that would give Perkin kudos that Henry has been desperately fighting him not to have. Since late 1495, Henry had been putting pressure on Ferdinand and Isabella to get Perkin and hand him over to him. But now, they had a better idea. They would get him, but they would keep him. He'd be out of harm's way and he'd be a useful bargaining chip in negotiations with Henry. So give us what we want or we release the Perkin. Right. And when Ferdinand and Isabella got confirmation that Perkin was in Scotland, they started to slow down the marriage negotiations with Henry until we see where affairs of the King of Scotland will stop. So, although they're ostensibly very much Team Henry, they're still keeping an eye on how these things are going to go. Yeah. Henry's greatest fear was that Perkin would fall into French hands. Ayala was the Spanish ambassador to Scotland. He was a charming, easygoing man who enjoyed hunting and cards. He was just the sort of person to attract James. And he was working on the Scottish King to drop Perkin. Ayala was also dripping poison into Perkin's ear, saying that James and Henry were about to conclude a peace, which they weren't. 
and this terrified Perkins so much he decided to leave Scotland and head for Ireland, although, as we've seen, this was no longer friendly territory. So Iona told him that his best bet will be to head to Spain as soon as possible. Well, he is running out of people that he hasn't, you know, upset. Mm. And when Ferdinand and Isabella heard about this, they were thrilled and hoped to have Perkin on Spanish soil before they announced the impending marriage between um, Arthur and Catherine. But in the meantime, James had his heart set on war with England. And not just for Perkin's sake. The only thing that would stop him waging war was Henry making a truce on James's terms and a Spanish princess. He really wanted a Spanish princess. Isabella wrote to de Puebla, We have no daughter to give to the king. I was going to say, aren't they all gone? We have no daughter to give to the king of Scots, as you well know. But we must not deprive him of hope. On the contrary, we must amuse him as long as possible. So they didn't have one, but they're still negotiating. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, James knew that he had been tricked because he'd intercepted the letters. He was not happy. And Henry desperately tried to get James to take his own daughter, but it's too late. James had his heart set on war. On September the 17th, 1496, James's army marched on England. According to Virgil, Perkin convinced James that once they crossed the border and he raised his Duke of York standard, people would come flocking to him. And we've heard this before with Lambert Simnel. It didn't happen no. on either occasion. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if Perkin really believed it. As Perkin told Maximilian, so it was obviously still in contact with him, <laughs> he probably wrote to him going, sorry, really sorry, <laughs> that he and James had, were taking the field with 30,000 men. In fact, they only had 4,000. Oh. Does somebody not know how to count? <laughs> I don't know. I bet Maximilian was passing it on. He was probably saying it was 60,000. <laughs> Double it um, every time it goes through somebody else. Yes. James and Perkin had different approaches to war. James wanted to go to Northumberland and reclaim the area for Scotland, but it made more sense for Perkin to go to Cumbria, which was a Yorkist stronghold. Okay. And I wonder if Perkin assumed that James was fighting the war for him. But he wasn't. James called Perkin before him and his council and set forth his demands. The town of Berwick, seven border sheriffdoms, and 100,000 marks to be paid within five years of Perkin becoming king. He just keeps offering... <laughs> Does he... Please tell me Perkin Warbeck sits there and say, I don't have that money. I've given too much to everybody else. Sort of. After consultation with his advisors, Perkin modified this. He refused the sheriffdoms which is odd because that's the one thing he probably could afford. <laughs> he halved the money, but said it would be paid over two years. He could say whatever he liked, really. He hasn't got the money, is he? Yeah. <laughs> and when you think how much he already owed Margaret and Maximilian and Philip. As he rode into England clutching the proclamation that was intended to turn the English people to his cause, he was entering a country that he'd either left as a small child or had never been in before. Not so very different from Henry's Henry. entry. The proclamation was to be shouted by town criers across England, but it was 2,000 words long. <laughs> <laughs> it contained the line, Our dearest cousin, the King of Scots, which without any gift or other things by him desired or demanded. Oh, really? Uh -huh. <laughs> and later he said, He fully set and determined to return home again quietly with his people into his own land without doing or suffering to be done any hurt or prejudice unto our realm. Well, these were both lies. Yes. 
He accused Henry of murdering Lord Fitzwater, Sir William Stanley and several others, and of keeping his right entirely well-beloved cousin Edward in prison. Well, that's, that's true enough. Yes, that is true. <laughs> the proclamation then goes on to list the monstrous things done daily by Henry. Manifold treasons, abominable murders, extortions. And this all sounds very similar to the accusations Henry brought against Richard III. But in fact, Perkin was a little premature with his accusation of extortions, because that was kicking in the following year. And it was the Scottish invasion that gave Henry the excuse to raise the money, <laughs> which gave rise to the excesses of Dudley and Empson. <laughs> Everything's linked. Yes. And in fact, as you mentioned in Empson's episode, Perkin laid into Henry's new men, including Bishop Fox, Reginald Bray and Empson. Not Dudley for some reason, don't know why. Hmm. He also complained that Henry had married diverse ladies of the royal blood to certain his kinsmen and friends of simple and low degree. Hmm. Which is a pots and kettles moment, given that Edward yes. IV, apparently his father, yes. had made himself unpopular marrying the nobility to his Woodville relations. Yes. Perkin offered a reward of £1,000 for anyone who took Henry. I'm not sure whether he was getting this £1,000 for. <laughs> he never had any money of his own. But anyway, and he signed this proclamation, R.R. Ricardus Rex. And Perkin probably spent more time writing his proclamation than he did on English soil. Hmm. The Scottish borders were the wrong place to start an insurrection with the backing of the Scots. There was already enmity between Northern English and the Scots. And he's coming in with the Scots. Yep. Well, that's going to help. Whatever Perkin may have thought, James was not looking at this as being a long, drawn-out campaign, you know, marching down to London to free the throne. The carters and other workmen paid to accompany the troops had only been hired for two weeks. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of any kind of campaign that lasts only two weeks. It'll be over by Christmas. Well, this one doesn't last that long, to tell you the truth. Oh. James would do a few border raids, and by that time, the good people of England would rise up in favour of Perkin, and then James could go home and leave him to it. How did they get that idea? I'm coming in with a group that are going to harass these people, and these people are going to say thank you. Hmm. No. Never learn. Many of the troops that accompanied Perkin were German mercenaries. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> Brought its own problems. <laughs> we, as we will hear in our episode on syphilis, and you will remember that we learnt that syphilis entered Scotland with Perkins' German mercenaries. Yes. Also, we learnt that it entered Burgundy with the sailors that brought Joanna to marry Philip. So Perkin has inadvertently been responsible for the spread of syphilis into two different countries. Oh my gosh. Something to have on your conscience, isn't it? If he even thought of it that way. If he wouldn't have known. No, I get the feeling he's dumb. He may be charismatic, but he's not very bright. That's how it feels. Unfortunately, when Perkin entered England, no one seemed to notice. <laughs> That's like the ultimate insult. <laughs> I am your king. Nobody looks at you. <laughs> but apart from those that hid from the German-Scottish army, and as the army realised that no support was coming, they reverted to a raiding party of the type that was oh, awful, no. too familiar to the people living on the borders. Oh. And Perkin hightailed it back to Edinburgh. Oh, he didn't even stay. He didn't stay. No, before he left, Perkin and James had a flaming row with Perkin in tears. It does seem a tearful. tearful yes, he does. Out, begging James to stop savaging his country. Virgil, in his usual snidey way, said that when Perkin entered England, his spies told him that there was no uprising. So he feigned compassion for the English and left, 
as he was afraid that the Scottish army would turn against him. So, again, he's running from his own side. Jeez. Oh, I don't you've got to feel sorry for Perkin. I don't think he, he can do a single thing right. Well, his envisaged ride down through England, with happy people throwing down their tools and skipping joyfully after him, has turned in just two hours and four miles into England into a bloodbath. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And to cap it all, when Perkin confronted James, according to Virgil, and I'm not quite sure how Virgil would know this, James said, It seems to me, sir, that you are meddling in another man's business and not your own. Ooh. Mm. So it sounds very much as if the scales fell from James's eyes when he saw the complete indifference with which Perkin was greeted. But yes. If they'd left it a couple of years, then maybe people would have been queuing up to oust Henry. Maybe they should have waited to do the marriage until after they found out if he could even get the crown. Poor yes. girl. Yeah. James said that the English, far from recognising Perkin as king, did not even seem to recognise him as an Englishman. Which is probably true, since he came at the head of a German-Scottish army. <laughs> yeah. But then, had Henry's army that landed at Milford Sound been any different? I mean, that was full of mercenaries, wasn't it? But at least, uh, I was going to say, but at least he could claim he was born in England, but that's what Perkin was saying as well. Yeah. As Perkin rode back to Scotland, James sent someone to catch up with him and gave him a present of £78 and 8 shillings. But if it was a peace offering, it was not an indication that James intended to be peaceful. He carried on pillaging and murdering for a further four days and only stopped with the arrival of an English force. This was the first warfare that Perkin had seen close up, but that was no different from Henry at Bosworth. Yeah. But James had a very different feeling about blood, since, if you remember, he was the amateur dentist. Oh, right. What sort of person becomes an amateur dentist? A sadist. <laughs> Maybe not now. We have painkillers, but back then... Yeah. Once James got back to Edinburgh, the relationship between the two men was tense. Yeah. James may have used Perkin as a pretext to go to war against the English, but Perkin's failure now reflected badly on him. And whereas Perkin's name had f appeared frequently in James's account before, he rarely appeared in them at all after this. Uh... And his pension had previously been paid to the Duke of York. Now it was given to his servants with instructions for them to pass it on. Oh. It's quite a snub. But at the same time, he's still paying him. So it hasn't yes. totally dropped him. Has But now it's, you are a pawn. You are not a friend. You are not an equal. You are a pawn. Possibly. Oh? This might have been show, as oh. we'll see later. Okay. Oh. On September 25th, Henry declared war on Scotland, unless James gave up the feigned lad. Henry was afraid to raise an army in the north in case they defected to Perkin, as it was, he needn't have worried. No. But Perkin had some compensation, though. He had his son, Richard, possibly. A wife who believed in him wholeheartedly. But did she have any choice? I mean, what was the alternative? To admit she was married to an imposter who had married him under a false name would oh. nullify the ceremony. If they had a child, what would that have made her? Yeah. Oh, that poor woman. Hmm. However, Anne Rowe, in the book Perkin, seemed to think that this little family did seem to have given Perkin the home he'd always been looking for, and an end to his wanderings, for the time being. I'm not sure where she got this information, but it's, she, she painted a nice little picture of a happy little family. Hmm. Perkin stayed for a further ten months in Scotland, at James' expense, although James could hardly afford it, having practically bankrupted himself raiding England. But where else could Perkin go? Philip had signed a pact with Henry, saying he wouldn't help rebels, and that included Margaret. 
although Ferdinand and Isabella suspected she was still plotting. Ireland had gone over to Henry, including the Earl of Desmond, and Henry sent a copy of Desmond's bond to Scotland, so what must Perkin have thought when he saw that his last ally had gone over to the dark side? Henry then made agreements with the Kildares, the Fitzgeralds and the Ormonds, and in this way he made Ireland a completely no-go area for Perkin. He sent out Perkins to all but two people, include Perkins? He sent out pardons. <laughs> <laughs> Henry sent out pardons to lots of people, including the Earl of Desmond, but excluding Mr Atwater, twice Mayor of York. Oh. And he, he never gets pardoned. Okay. How Henry achieved this, I'm not sure, threats and promises, I suppose. But it's just as well for him he did, because James was ready to go to war. If Ireland had still been available, things could have gone quite differently. So Henry spent a colossal £60,000 preparing for this war. And in June, Henry's fleet sailed north. He continued to offer James a six-year-old Margaret's hand in marriage and peace. But James must give up Perkin, and James held out. But as de Puebla said, it was the sight of Henry's army, or the ears of the wolf as he called it, that made James decide to ditch Perkin fast. And in fact, a ship had been made ready to take Perkin away since the end of 1496, and it's called the Cuckoo. (laughs) And people made comments about that even at the time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So had James been just taunting Henry all this time, enjoying watching him spend all that money on an army that James knew he wouldn't need? Henry spent Bishop... Henry Henry sent Bishop's Fock... I had trouble with this last time. Yes. (laughs) Henry sent Bishop Fox to Scotland with some public instructions to negotiate with James and some secret ones to nab Perkin any way he could. And once he got there, it was all irrelevant. The bird had flown. He's gone again. Yes. (laughs) In July 1497, Perkin and James had said their goodbyes. Perkin sailed from air on a ship containing no weapons and no soldiers. Just him, his tiny entourage, his wife Catherine, their little baby Richard, possibly. And I don't know where Perkin thought he was going. James told the captain, only restore the Duke of York to the shore of England. And Perkin may have left Scotland in order to join the Cornish uprising, unaware that it had already failed. James claimed to the last that Perkin was the Duke of York, but how could he do otherwise? Yes. But where could Perkin go now? Nowhere. Find out in next week's exciting instalment. Ooh, part three. (laughs) Here endeth the second lesson. (laughs) Unless, of course, I delete this one and we have to do it all over again. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) Oh, if we we do, we'll just have to bring out parts one and three. And you just have to guess the middle (laughs) bit. (laughs) That'll go Thank you for listening to Perkin Part 2. Join us next week for Perkin Part 3. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>